0: Thank you guys so much, ladies and men, for leading us. Uh, today we are continuing our series in First Peter, but uh, I know that it's Mother's Day today, and I think the sermon title may actually be fairly fitting uh, for today, Suffering for Doing Good. Uh, seems like an appropriate title for Mother's Day, but we are not um, going to spend time talking about Mother's Day today, sorry, but we are going to continue, rather, our series in First Peter, and so if you have your Bibles with you, turn to First Peter chapter 3. We are in um, chapter 3 today, and we're going to continue on until we're done this book. But there's a few things, if you are new to this series, or if you're new to uh, 1 Peter, and you haven't really read this book before, a uh, few little details that I want to share with you before we dive in. Um, Peter is writing to a church... And this letter, or churches I should say, this letter is to be circulated and, and sent to a number of different churches. And he is writing to a church community that is experiencing persecution, uh, severe persecution. They are you know, being tortured, they are being sought out. This is all kind of happening during the um, reign of Emperor Nero and some of the other others that were just very violent individuals at that time. And so this for us as Deerun Church may be a little bit difficult at times for us to relate to because we just do not really experience physical persecution today at all uh, in, in, in our, our context. And so we need to recognize that the things that Peter is writing, he is writing into that kind of an environment, into that kind of a setting. And that's important because the things he says are very, very uh, in, uh, specific to the needs that they are dealing with. And I think that at the same time, there's a lot for us to learn from them. The other thing that we need to also be aware of is the culture than which he is writing to. Peter is writing into a culture where women, and we're going to see this in the first section, where women were often really looked down on. He is writing, you know, in these verses, and he's writing to this, you know, environment. You know, you saw in chapter two where he kind of spoke to the slaves, and again, for us in our culture and our society. Um, Well, that is hard for us to even relate to and understand because slavery is something that that we don't, uh, uh, you know, at all accept or endorse in any kind of way here in North America. We know that there's millions and millions of slaves uh, in today's world, but in that time, slavery was quite acceptable. And so Peter writes into these cultures, and one thing I need you to understand and to recognize right off the bat is he does not address the culture in the sense of saying you need to change your culture, Rather, what he does is he writes to these people in these you know, cultures, in these situations, and he literally is trying to tell them, and he's telling them how to live out their faith in those environments. In those cultures, in that setting. Now, I think that there is a significant principles that he writes that are so applicable for us today. But you need to understand that when you read this, the way he is writing, um, especially when he writes to women, the way he writes, I think some of us, if we are not aware of the culture to which he is writing, we may find ourselves, uh, you know, know, really, really uh, offended almost by what he is saying. So let's read this with kind of that as a, you know, in context, and then let's unpack what this means for us today. 1 Peter chapter 3, if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. Verse verse 1, wives, in the same way, now remember, let's stop there for a second. He just finished in chapter 2 talking about how the slaves are to live and how we are to live under authority. And so he's continuing this teaching right from where he left off in chapter 2. Wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word... That they may be that they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Now, this is an important thing for us to understand because it is believed, it's widely believed, that Peter is writing in response to a concern. It's possible that someone wrote him. Someone may have gone to him and said, "Peter, here's what's going on. Here is the concern that we have. Here's what's happening. What do you suggest we do? What do you want us to do in this context?" And so the concern is very likely this. What do we do when we were married to a man who is not a believer? What do we do when we were married to a man or we were forced to marry someone or we chose to marry someone or in that time women really didn't have a lot of say in who they married? What do we do when we are believers but our husband is not? And Peter here begins to speak to that. He's addressing, he says, in the same way though, As slaves submit to their masters, you are to submit to your husband so that if any of them do not believe, that they will begin to believe, not by the words you say, but by the way that you live your life. Now, if you feel the temptation to challenge that and to push against that and say, that sounds wrong, I understand. But you have to understand the culture in which Peter is writing to, because this would have been a very, very important thing for the women back then to understand that if they are going to fight this in a way that is other than what God would want, it's not going to work out for them. And so in verse 3, Peter now begins to outline in more detail how they should do this. He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now what Peter is saying here to the, to the women in that time is that what your husband should see and what's going to ultimately lead him to possibly give his life to Christ is not what they do on the outside, He's already mentioned that they should, you know, maybe, you know, that they should, you know, do this without words. He's not telling them you should preach to your husband. You should, you know, push, push your agenda. And now he's saying your outward appearance, your outward adornment, the things that, that are going to get to him is not what you do on the outside. It is what you are going to do from within. You, it's As if he's saying to the ladies, you need to reveal to your husband what God has done in you. And that is going to do far more than what you do on the outside. Now, I know this text is often used to say, this is why you shouldn't have fancy hair, this is why you shouldn't wear jewelry, but I don't think that that's the principle that Peter is getting to here. I think what Peter is emphasizing here is that the way they are going to show their husbands what God has done is not through outward appearance, but rather by an inner, you know, with their inner beauty, a gentle Um, spirit and quiet spirit which is of great worth to God and so I think this is a beautiful teaching that Peter is giving to these ladies for the ancient world unfortunately they classed women and slaves as inferior beings that's just the way it was. And Peter, instead of addressing the culture and saying, you need to change the culture, he is now speaking to that and saying, ladies, and, and you know, before that to the slaves, this is how you can still live out your faith in God in that community. Christianity, on the other hand, gives dignity to both. Peter stresses earlier the spiritual equality of men and women as heirs together with God. When Peter in chapter, you know, the previous chapters said that you are a chosen people, you are heirs with Christ. He never, you know, said men. You are chosen. You know, he said you, the church, and you can imagine for the women in that culture and in that time to hear Peter say that you, as women, are chosen. So the Bible and it gives a lot of dignity to women. Paul interestingly exhorts mutual submission. For both couples. Paul, when he wrote on this topic, he says that wives were to be submissive, to, and that submissiveness was to be matched by the husband's love. And scripture teaches that men and women are to complement one another in their marriage relationship. And because men are generally physically stronger, Paul teaches very strongly that they are not to take that as something to you know, domineer their wife, but they are rather take that strength, that, that, that natural strength that most men have that would be greater than their wives, they are to use that to cherish their wife. And again, I think this is a beautiful way that the Bible shows that men and women are equal. In those days, husband, the husband was the main breadwinner, and therefore, in that culture, it made sense that when the husband says, we're going this way, that's what they would do. And you see this in Abraham and Sarah and and Peter uses this and he says, you know, as the way that Sarah moved with her husband when he said it's time to move would have made perfect sense to them. And so I think this is, you know, Peter is using this as a way of saying there are those who have gone before you and use them as an example on how to live. Now our task today, our task today is to interpret the principles laid down by scripture for the times in which we live in today. So it may not look the same way, it may not sound the same way that we, you know, how we would, you know, live our lives today, but the principles, I believe, are the exact exact same. That what God wants us to do, if we are married to someone who is not a believer, if we are in a a relationship or we are in a situation in a marriage where there's tension and where there's, you know, there's strife and whatever it may be, that it is the work that God has done in us that should first and foremost be displayed, not stuff that's on the outside, not winning the argument, not you know, those kind of things. But rather allowing the work that God has done in us and allowing that to come forth, uh, you know, be, be more visible than the outward things. So this is a very complicated topic for Peter to address. And he does it like he does all the other topics in this book. He does it by pointing us to live the way that Christ lived. He wants us to live our lives in the way that Jesus lived his life. And now from this topic, you know, very defined topic, he now moves on to address um, another theme within this book. And that is where we are going to land at most of today. And that is the whole concept of suffering for doing good. Jump to verse 8. He says, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. He hasn't changed topics. He's still talking about the same, you know, um, addressing how we are to live our Christian life among those who are not Christians. And what he does here is Peter describes the five characteristics desired within Christians. The first one is this, that they are to be like-minded. A person's character is determined and revealed by the things which they give their mind to. Okay, A person's character is determined and revealed by the things to which they give their mind to. Peter insists that we should be united by a common interest and a common outlook. A mind informed by God's Spirit. So he says, you as a church are to be like-minded. You are to all set your minds together on God and on the Word of God. So that would you know, help define their character. He said, the other characteristic that they are to have is that they're to be sympathetic. This word means to suffer together. The idea of rejoicing and weeping together it is, and at its deepest level, this should follow the preceding characteristic of being like-minded. So as a like-minded community, they are to be willing to suffer together. They are to have a common spiritual mind, and they should move, be moved by the sensitivity of the Spirit to care for others and be sympathetic towards their needs. They are to love one another. Peter is you know, talking here about phileo love or brotherly love. This implies loving one another because now they are related in a sense. They are related, brothers and sisters, related to one another. and So they are to love one another. They are to be compassionate. This can mean many different things. But here the adjective means tender hearted. In our society today, where we are bombarded with so many you know tragedies, and we have become so accustomed to hearing about different you know, violence and tragedies, and, and the news is constantly throwing this information at us, it is easy for us to become hardened. If the bombing that happened, you know isn't greater than the last one or if the school shooting isn't more tragic in our hearts than last time, if the, you know, whatever tragedy it may be isn't greater than the one that happened prior to it, we have become so accustomed to hearing about tragedy that we are almost, or that we can be hardened towards it. And Peter here is saying that one of the characteristics of a Christian is that we are compassionate. That no matter the tragedy, no matter how great or small, that we will be people who are compassionate. Now again, remember the context in which he is writing. He is writing here to a church who is being persecuted. You would think that the last thing that he would be concerned about is Christians having compassion for those who are persecuting them. But rather he is saying, finally all of you, all of you in the church, and one of the things he wants them to be is compassionate. And then finally he says that we are to be humble. Now humility is a peculiar Biblical virtue. Okay, it is, a, it is a strange thing in Scripture because on the one hand, you are nothing. You know, created from dust and you are nothing. On the other hand, you are heirs with Christ. You are chosen people, royal priesthood, saints you know, redeemed and sanctified by God. And so humility is this interesting place sometimes in Scripture for Christians because on the one hand, the Bible, you know, talks to us as as if though, you know, we are to humble ourselves and, you know, and even Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, you know, this idea that we should never pursue that. But at the same time, look at who you are in Christ. And I think the goal for us here today is to always recognize he, you know, that we are always to live never thinking of ourselves as better than someone else. And I think this is a huge principle for us to live out in these days today. Whereas Christians, we can sometimes have this attitude that we are better than other people. And Peter here is saying one of the characteristics of a Christian or in a Christian should be that they are humble in, in, in the places where they are. Peter now indicates how the Christian is to act towards those who are unfriendly to them or, or to those who are malicious or intend to harm them. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary. Okay? So not, don't just not do this, but on the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Verse 10. For whoever... Would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. So on the one hand, they are not to retaliate, and on the other hand, they are to be positive in expressing, you know, um, their words and their deeds. Now I think this is an important lesson for us to remember because on the one hand we might say, "Okay, I'll just control myself. I'll just be careful at how I react." So when someone says something to me, someone does something to me, you know, someone wrongs me, okay, I won't shoot them the finger. I won't do this. I won't do this, you know, and I'll just behave myself. And that's, you know, once I've measured, you know, to that, you know, level, then I'm good. And Peter says, no, 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 beyond that, you are to repay, not just by not doing what they did to you. You are to actually repay with blessing. You are to repay with positive deeds and words. I don't know about you. That can get a little complicated. Just last Sunday, um, I'll admit that I cut some guy off a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, was, I, I think I would have excuse to say that it was kind of both our fault. And so I cut a guy off a little bit. He chased me down. Chased me down. Called me. Finally, he's on a motorcycle. Called, you know, yelling at me. And so finally I'm like, this guy's going to crash, you know. So I pulled over and, and Lucky Simon, he was with me and, and so, you know, rolled down my window and, oh, my, I did not know words could get so colorful. You know, the environment that I work in, I don't normally hear this stuff. And so I was called pretty much everything. And, you know, and there's always that temptation in that moment to just kind of fire back. And I know these words and I know how to use them. I'm well trained in my former days, you know. And, uh, and so there was a temptation to kind of do that, you know. And I remember I looked at the guy and I said, I'm sorry, and he's like, well, well, well you, know, you could have killed me. You know, I'm like, I just said sorry for that very thing. I recognize I did wrong. I'm sorry. And I, tell, I think every single one of us will have those moments in our lives where we will be tempted to just not react in a negative way. But to use this principle would be to say, don't just not react to a certain degree, but to be willing to express in a positive way. To return evil with blessing. I think a huge, huge important thing here for us. Remember, Peter is writing here to a church that is experiencing persecution. And he's telling them to have a gentle, you know, very careful way of responding. But now in verse 15, we're going to jump there in a little bit. Peter tells us now how we are going to be able to do this. Because one thing that Peter is very clear about in this passage is that you cannot do this simply with outward expressions. You are not going to be able to do this with just, you know, having a certain outward approach. He mentioned that already to the women, and now he's saying this to all of us. Look at what he says in verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone, sorry, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, it is noteworthy worthy here to note, you know, for us, let me say it again. It is noteworthy that the sanctuary, okay, the place in which Christ is to be acknowledged as holy and worshiped isn't outwardly. And I think we can get in this trap where we worship God outwardly. We don't say you know, the wrong things. We don't go and see this or do this or whatever it may be. So outwardly, we can easily maybe get into a place where we are you know, worshiping God in a sense outwardly, but the sanctuary, the place in which Christ is to be acknowledged you know, and worshiped is in the heart. They are to worship Jesus here first. If Jesus is not worshiped in our heart first, he cannot genuinely be worshipped. If Jesus is not worshipped in our hearts first, Jesus cannot be genuinely worshipped outwardly. And I think this is such an important thing that Peter says, the very first thing you must do, if you're going to be able to endure all this persecution, if you're going to be able to you know, fulfill the characteristics, if you're going to be able to respond in a right way, the first place you must start is by revering Christ, worshiping Christ in your heart. Another passage is set Christ, you know, this idea of setting him apart first in our hearts. So that in our hearts we worship Jesus first. Then he goes on to say, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who has asked you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And it's interesting here that very often we read a passage like this and we might say, what this is saying is that we should be prepared to debate critics, that we should be prepared to go against those who, you know, who disagree with us, with you know, those who maybe slander us, that we should be prepared to always defend, you know, and those kind of things. But the cool thing here is that he's actually writing to everyone. So this isn't just to those who are maybe critics, this is maybe even to those individuals who who just are curious about what's going on. So he's, he's saying that no matter where we are, anybody, everyone, we need to be ready to give an explanation for the confidence that we have in Christ. The individual who comes to you and says, hey, what is this about you? What are you doing? Who, what's going on in your life? They may not be asking those questions to criticize you. They may be genuine, genuinely intrigued by your lifestyle. And so they're not asking to be critical, but they want to know about What's going on in your life? And it is so important for us in every single situation to be ready to give an explanation for what God has done in us. So let's take a moment to look at how so, at some practical guidance concerning, you know, our Christian witness. The first thing is this. That we are not, that it is wrong to always be preaching at people. It is wrong to always be preaching at people. If your conversations with people is what I'm doing right now with a microphone. That's not the right approach, friends. It is wrong for us to always be preaching at people. I think I think it's very important for example, Peter told the Christian wives to seek their her husband without speaking on the subject. But the changes, you know, completely this changes completely when someone is asking for an explanation that we are then to be ready to give a reason for what we believe. The Christian is to engage, but not in an aggressive way. We are not to attack the other person's, you know, belief. We're not here to tell them that they're wrong. Just this week I had the opportunity to to share in a classroom about what it means to be a pastor. And I felt very honored that, you know, I was asked to come in there and someone asked a question. And the question, you know, and I was being really careful not to, you know, because there's all kids there with different beliefs and things like that, so I wanted to be very sensitive to that. But the question was such that the only way I could answer it was by pointing to Jesus. And so I was kind of quiet, you know, and I'm looking at the teacher in the back, and, you know, and she knew where this was going, and she just says, go ahead. Now, if I would have lived my life always attacking non-Christians, I don't know if I would have ever been invited into that classroom. So I want to say this to us carefully. The attitude with which you share the gospel may have a greater impact to the hearer than the content. Do you hear what I said? The attitude with which you share the gospel may have a greater impact on the hearer than the content. Because if your attitude is such that you are better than them, if your attitude is such that they are wrong, if your attitude is, you know, whatever it may be, they may never get past the attitude And they will never hear the content. And trust me, you share the greatest message. You have in your possession the greatest news. You have the most valuable thing anyone could ever have. But if your attitude is not what God wants of you, is not humble, is not compassion, if your attitude is wrong, they will never hear that because they can't get past the attitude. And I wish I would not be tempted to do this, so I won't. Sorry for even thinking it, but man, I know some people, their attitude is blocking them from ever truly sharing the love of Jesus. Because their attitude does not express love for Jesus one bit. That's all I'll say to that. So be careful with the attitude with which we present. Because the content is not in question. This word changes lives. But if our attitude is such that it never has a chance to even really be heard by the hearer because they can't get past our attitude, anyway, I think I'm going in circles. So let's continue more. I think another thing that's very noteworthy here, and you know, obviously Peter doesn't speak to this, but I think a very noteworthy thing here is for us to remember that it is possible that Peter is saying these things in response to his own failure always be prepared to give an answer well what did peter what was peter not prepared to do at one time give an answer he found himself in an unexpected you know he was unexpectedly asked in an unfamiliar with an un, by an unfamiliar person in an unusual place and what did he do he denied jesus three times he was not prepared to give an answer and so peter is saying here Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have, for what God has done, for the reason and for the hope that you have. So this section of verses, uh, verses, chapter 3, 8, and 22, is possibly the most complex train of thought in the entire book. And the key link with, you know, with all of this is, is suffering. Suffering. Peter has been preparing his readers for future suffering and even for the present suffering. And he is anticipating, he is anticipating that some of them may have a a wrong human reaction. And that their reaction would be, what a waste. Why would we bother to suffer? And so Peter brings in, like he always does, he brings Jesus back into the conversation. Verse 18. Look at the way he does it. For Christ also suffered. So as if he's saying, I'm not asking you to suffer. I'm not asking you to do good things just because of you. This goes way beyond you. Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He put to death in the body. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in Christ. I think what Peter is doing here is he's saying, if you need to understand if you need a purpose or value for suffering, look no further than Jesus. And if in Jesus you find value and purpose for suffering, then you must believe that there is value and purpose in your suffering. Because through Jesus' suffering, we now have forgiveness of sin, we have redemption, you know, the, you know, the old is gone and the new has come, all those beautiful things. That's all as a result of the suffering of Jesus. And if you th- Do not believe in the value of what Jesus did when obviously you will not see any value in what you are suffering. But if you value what Jesus did, the suffering that Jesus had for you, surely you must know that there is value in suffering, in the suffering that you are also having. At the height of World War II, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned for taking a stand against Hitler. And yet he continued to urge fellow believers to resist Nazi tyranny a group of Christians believing that Hitler was the Antichrist asked Bonhoeffer, "'Why do you expose yourself to all this danger? "'Jesus will return any day, and all your work and suffering will be for nothing.'" Bonhoeffer replied, "'If Jesus returns tomorrow, then tomorrow I will rest for my labor. "'But today I have work to do. "'I must continue the struggle until it is finished.'" And I think it's a beautiful thing for us to recognize that the suffering that we are going to endure, the suffering that we could do is worth it, and it is worth it already. That God is doing a work in us. And when we look at the people who have gone before us, it is because of their suffering. It is because of what they were willing to do for the, in the name of Christ that often is why we have the message here today. It's because of the suffering of those Christians early years years and years ago, is because of the suffering that they were willing to do, we now have the message, and we often look back on those individuals who suffered so much as a way of drawing strength from them, knowing that if they can do it, we can do it. And I would say to us as a church, it is our turn to do the same for those who will come after us. Will our great-great-great-grandparents and grandchildren, will they be able to look back on us and be built up and, and, and strengthened through the way that we endured Hardships for Christ. In 1550, in Bamberg, two young girls received Christ as their Savior, and it wasn't long before they were arrested and they were tortured tremendously in every way, you know, cruel way imaginable. And so ultimately they were condemned to death. And so they were led out to be executed, and it is believed that these girls were around 15 years old, just young girls. And they were led out to be executed, and they have already experienced tremendous, tremendous persecution. And as they are led out, almost as a final way of mocking them, someone, the persecutor made a, um, a crown, a wreath you know, of straw, and placed it on the girls' heads. And this was kind of as a last minute of mockery before they were going to be, be executed. And so one of the girls said to the other, Since the Lord Christ... Wore a crown of thorns for us. Why shouldn't we wear these crowns of straw in honor of him? The faithful God shall for this place be, um, for this place, a beautiful crown, golden crown, and a glorious wreath upon our heads. Here is these two young girls in the worship team. You guys can make your way up. Here is these two young girls who recognized that what God was going to do for them was far greater than the suffering that they were enduring at that moment. And I want to just leave us today with the thought that we would just consider that whatever suffering we may be experiencing, whatever hardship we may be going through, that we would always in everything recognize that the suffering will be worth it and that it is worth it already because God has called us to live out what he has taught us And if Jesus was willing to suffer for us, and if it was a a good thing for us, then surely the suffering that we may experience will also be a positive thing for those who come after us. And may that give us courage as we continue to live live out what God has called us to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for what Jesus did for us. And I pray, Lord, that as we go from here, It's possible that some of us will experience some difficulty in in our families, maybe even at work, in our community, in our society. And I just pray, God, that we would just open ourselves to be led by you and that we would be willing to suffer because we know that your suffering for us paved the way for us to have salvation and recognizing that our suffering will, will possibly help others hear about how good you are. And, and what your plan is for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name.